Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you suffer from the mindset of old? Are there any benefits to getting older? And how can we leverage aging to experience greater meaning, passion, and purpose? Stephen Kotler is known as the flow guru, and he's got a new book called NAR Country. He's put his peak performance theories to the test to see if he can pull off the seemingly impossible, learning how to park ski as a 50-something-year-old guy. Today, Kotler brings his fire hose of flow info to discuss the inevitable midlife crisis, how flow is the key to overcoming fear, and how he uses THC as a performance-enhancing drug. Right on. Well, congrats on the new book. Anything we need to get out of the way before we can dive in? No, let's dive in. Let's dive in. Okay, NAR Country. Um, you're going to have to explain that title to, to a bunch of my people, I'm sure. So what does NAR Country mean? Great place to start. Uh, full title, NAR Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. The book's about peak performance aging. The title, NAR is action sports slang it's short for gnarly but as you know action sport athletes despite the flamboyantly seeming language the language is really precise and gnar refers to any environment that is high in perceived risk and high in actual risk country is any landscape or domain or territory so in our country you put it together is turns out both a phenomenal description of our later years high in perceived risk, high in actual risk. And when you start getting into the new science, big performance aging, what's really sort of going on, it's also a great description, I'm sure we'll get to this over time, of sort of the gritty mindset required to thrive during our later years. So that's what NAR country is. Okay, yeah, thanks for, um, I, was, I was just imagining having somebody be like, Gnar, what is what is that? So the re- I didn't think it was gonna be a problem at all, until I had a legal meeting with my lawyer and he was trying to talk about like the class that we built off of it. He's like, I don't know what this enter the Gnar thing is. And I was like, oh shit. I, oh shit. It's kind of like, oh, 
nobody nobody told me <laughs> all right so i grew up probably i like you i grew up skating and and uh doing tricks on my bike and surfing and still surf to this day i just bought a new board an hour ago i'm really stoked it's getting shipped today so um it was great to read this because i just turned 50 and you know just a few weeks ago i was out in head high couple you know a couple feet overhead and it's like eh, is this this is smart you know and i take really good care of myself i train but i'm I, there is a thing about turning somewhere in my head it was like is this am i being dumb and there was there was an aspect of this as i was going through this wondering if your book is kind of a, a manual for a midlife crisis because i meet so many guys that are waking up around this time in their lives they've been sleepwalking through this period up until now and they're like shit i gotta make up for lost time i gotta get back after it and they get back after it as if they're 22 again and then they get hurt they do something stupid they don't know how to a connect between what's going on in their head and in their body and then something dumb happens and then it seems to reaffirm oh look i'm old i can't do stuff and um so i was really appreciating how you were bringing this and uh, i mean you were still doing shit in the when i was reading the book i was like oh my god that sounds insane but anyway, I want to come back to how to handle midlife and, you know, how does this relate to a midlife crisis, essentially? Let's talk about um, a couple of the big themes in the book and uh, big ideas in the book first, because I, I just want to lay the groundwork a little bit before I can answer that question, because um, I think the answer is really important. But the first thing to know, the place we've got to start is just with the the update on the traditional theories of aging. The traditional theory of aging, what I like to call the long, slow rot theory, is this idea that all of our mental skills and our physical skills decline over time and there's absolutely nothing we can do to stop the slide. And that idea actually, I mean, it probably been around forever, but Freud actually crystallized it. He wrote something in a book in 1907 that convinced everybody that this was the absolute truth. And by like 1995 or six, all we'd managed to do is prove Freud right, right? We figured out all the different ways the brain and the body decay. But starting around 1997, the whole story shifts and most people don't know the new story. And the new story is this. It's not that these skills don't decline over time. They all do. But we now know all of those skills, mental and physical, are use it or lose it skills. So if you never stop training these skills, you get to hang on to them, even advance them far later into life than anybody thought possible. Additionally, as we enter our 50s, there are a bunch of different sort of very profound, very important changes in how the brain works and how it processes information. And as a result of this, we gain access to a whole suite of like cognitive superpowers that nobody talks about. We get whole new levels of intelligence, problem solving, analogical thinking, critical reasoning, new levels of creativity, including divergent thinking, which is the hardest aspect of creativity to train, empathy, and the ability to see things from other people's perspectives flies through the earth, and so does wisdom. And wisdom is doubly important. One, it's, it's wisdom, right? It makes us wise and better people. Um, but two, wisdom and expertise are both neuroprotective against cognitive decline, meaning the brain's going to decline over time. If you want to stop that decline, you need to birth new neurons and create very sort of elaborate neural nets. That's what wisdom is. It's a very elaborate neural net, and it's in the most vulnerable parts of the brain. So all this stuff starts turning on in our 50s. The moral of the story is the idea that an old dog can't learn new tricks 
it's like it's completely wrong. In fact, it's so wrong that it turns out that old dogs are better at learning certain kinds of tricks than younger dogs. So this is sort of the real story. This is the real truth. What I want to talk about with the midlife crisis and especially sort of uh, the cycle you're talking about, which I think happens all the time. People jump back at it in their 50s. They haven't done a handful of things you need to do on the front end. They don't understand the differences between their body at 20, their body at 50. They get injured. And then you get this. It's, it's the mindset of old that you're talking about. You're describing what's known as the mindset of old. And so what's so dangerous about this is if I were to train in, in peak performance aging, right, where do you start? Simple question. Where do you start? You have to start with mindset. Much in the way if you're training peak performance, you often have to start with mindset. If you don't have a growth mindset, it's really hard to train in peak performance because they can't learn anything. Literally, the brain won't, won't let you learn. Peak performance aging is really interesting. If you don't have a positive mindset towards aging, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the second half of my life. I think it's filled with like really cool possibilities. I think my best days are ahead of me. The penalty is severe. So a positive mindset towards aging, which I just described, translates into seven and a half extra years of health and longevity. That's huge. Positive mindset towards aging is sort of like more important than quitting smoking or losing weight or doing a bunch of other stuff that we think is much more important. Now, shifting your mindset is where it's got to start. And um, I think, you know, whenever that sort of crisis you're describing arises, it's like, I'm going to get back again. And I will tell you, I've seen that mindset of old sort of set in there are neurochemical reasons why it arises and it's can set in as early as 30 earlier i've met guys in their 20s that did that it's crippling it's damaging there's it's 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 really causes a lot of problems and so the the place i like to start is is by exploding minds and i think the only way to do that and sort of reshape that midlife crisis a little bit is just a little like you don't need a lot of facts about peak performance aging you know what i mean like it, it's not like other sciences where you need a ton of data to sort of get, oh, shit, I, 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 this is not the way things work. They work a different way. You know, we get user or lose it skills. That, that makes sense to everybody, sort of. Let's come back to this, what this mindset means, because when you say peak performance, I think there's also a thing in our minds like, oh, well, that's for Laird. That's for those guys that do those things. I'm not one of those guys, never have yeah. been one of those guys. So how does peak performance if, if that's I a total that yeah that's a that's a definition problem let's let let me clarify thank you again great question when i talk about peak performance and really i think when anybody talks about peak performance they're only talking about one thing there can only be one thing we're talking about it's getting our biology to work for us rather than against us that's what we mean by peak performance getting our biology to work for us rather than against us peak performance aging getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when faced with the opportunities and challenges of our later years. That's what we're talking about here. So peak performance is available to everyone. And let me just sort of take it one step further. So at the heart of all human peak performance is a state of consciousness known as flow, um, right? Which is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And for those people who are not familiar with any of this terminology, flow refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. You get so focused on what you're doing, everything else just starts to disappear, melt away, and all aspects of performance, mental, physical, go through the roof. That's flow. And flow is everybody, every human being can get into flow. It's, it shows up in anyone, anywhere. 
um, provided certain initial conditions are met. It turns out flow is really key to adult development and peak performance aging for a lot of reasons that we can go into along the way. That's sort of not what I want to point out here. My point here is simply that flow is how humans do peak performance. Flow is universal in humans. Anybody can get into it provided certain initial conditions are met. And the Flow Research Collective, which is my company, where we you know do a lot of heavy science research on flow and then train people using the science, we work in 130 different countries. We work with everybody from you know Facebook to Accenture to Bain Capital to San Francisco Fire Department to the Air Force. I mean, like the list is sort of really, really wide. Peak performance is available to all, is my point. You talk about it in the in the book. You mentioned something that access to flow matters as we age. So I can imagine I would be looking if I'm stuck in this old mindset. I'm gonna look back to the things I used to do when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, and well, those were those years. That's that fixed old mindset. When you, when it, how does flow impact us, and why does it matter as we age? When we're in flow. Flow only shows up when we're sort of using our skills to the utmost, right? We're pushing on our skill set. It's um, it's a flow trigger. It's a triggers our preconditions that lead to more flow. So the challenge skills balance is the idea. We get the most flow when the challenge of the situation slightly exceeds our skill set. That tends to drive focus into the present moment, which drives flow. We talk all about the neurobiology if you want, but that's sort of the simple equation. What this means is on the other side of a flow state, we're more adaptive. We're more complex. Our skills are more complicated. We're also, because flow automatically extends empathy and wisdom, part of what we mean by peak performance, um, sense of self disappears and our ability to see things from other people's perspectives expands. Chick sent me high. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is often talked about as the godfather of flow psychology. He argued in six or seven of his books that flow is the engine of adult development. It is how we actually grow up. It's definitely how uh, it underpins happiness, meaning, purpose, well-being. All the things that we want in our later years are underpinned by flow. So that's at a broad level. Let's go one level down. When we're in flow, the state produces um a sense of control. It's one of the actually core psychological descriptions of flow. How do you know if you're in flow? One thing is you feel the sense of control. That's really the internal version of peak performance. We don't think, we don't feel like I'm performing at my best necessarily. We feel like, oh shit, I can control things I can't normally control. This could be you, you know, surfing, you know, normal head high day, and suddenly you're doing floaters and snapbacks off the lip and, you know, stuff that doesn't, wow, I'm controlling the surfboard in ways that I can't normally do it. could be me, 6 a.m. on a Tuesday doing things with sentences. I'm a writer that my sentences don't normally do it. 6 a.m. on a Tuesday, it doesn't really matter. There's this sense of control. And there's also, for the reasons we just talked about, the challenge skills balance, the sense of mastery. Flow underpins learning. Learning is massively accelerated in flow. So the feelings of mastering control are really interesting. They're two of our most favorite feelings as humans. They're like two of the things that really make us happiest. Here's the cool thing about exceptionally positive emotions like mastering control. They amplify the production of T-cells and natural killer cells. So T-cells are the cells that fight disease. Natural killer cells are the cells that target tumors and other sick cells. So from a peak performance aging standpoint, you can see why that's starting to matter even more. And then you got to go one level down, which is as we move into flow, there's a global release of a gaseous signaling molecule in the body known as nitrous oxide. It pushes stress hormones out of your system. If you've ever worked out in the gym, right, about 20 minutes in, it gets quiet upstairs, your lungs open up and you calm down, that's nitric oxide. It's done the same thing. It's pushed those stress hormones out of your system. So there are nine known causes of aging. 
all of them have share the same root. Inflammation is at the root of all the nine causes of aging. Inflammation directly ties to stress levels. It directly ties to cortisol levels and norepinephrine levels. So when you move into flow, reset the nervous system and flush these stress hormones out of our system, that's phenomenal from a peak performance aging standpoint. Even better, the neurochemicals that underpin flow all massively boost the immune system. So good, I talked about T cells, natural killer cells, but there's other stuff going on. This is not, by the way, my research alone. There's a whole field of neuroimmunology, goes all the way back to work Herb Benson, cardiologist did at Harvard 25 years ago, but there's a ton of, ton of this data at this point. So the point is that Flow isn't just, um, uh, it doesn't just make life worth living, it makes a whole lot more life worth living. And just as a, as, as a random, because it's wild and most people don't know this because nobody would care, but I care. So Chick sent me hi, he died during COVID, and, but he his very last study, which was just published posthumously, was literally on flow proneness over time. He wanted to know, flow is so important to develop, does it ever drop off a cliff? Does it ever go away? And it turns out it doesn't. It, it will it hangs on basically as long as we hold on to our biology. Physical fragility can ultimately block our access to flow because you lose your ability to get into flow. In fact, my entire in our country experiment, the whole thing I did in that book, except me, I and me, the last conversation we ever had before he passed away, he basically said this to me. He said, dude, he had been a rock climber and a mountaineer his whole life. That's how he got into flow predominantly. And he said, look, man, have a backup plan. You get older. I'm in my 80s. I can't go mountaineering. I can't go rock climbing. Have a backup plan. Have a lot of access ways to get into flow. Otherwise, you're going to be fucked, which he didn't put in that language. That's essentially what he said to me. And it was really, it was one of those moments where like, this wasn't like, you know, Ment mentor mentee relation. This was this was like one flow junkie to another, and he was like, "Dude, be careful. Have a backup plan." Huh. So in our country, my experiment where I taught myself how to park ski was actually my backup plan. That's where the book came from. We could talk about why that would be a backup plan, and that sounds really weird, but um, there's reasons for why it was my backup plan. But that's actually where all this started. Is this conversation with Mike on my last conversation before he died? Um, he had been doing this work on flow proneness over time, and uh, which I didn't know about until after he passed. And I saw, I saw the, I saw the piece come out. But it was interesting that it was the last conversation we had, and it was, it was literally at the front end of, of all this. And it's what I've been studying all these various things for twenty years. But the idea of like putting it together in in a single like learning protocol and applying it to my life. That was a total like that, you know, Mike says this to me. And I was like, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Let's go. That's beautiful. And, and I love that the, our system rewards us, not just emotionally for getting into flow. And it makes sense. We would need flow to do a certain thing and save our lives. And I can see, you can see the biological evolutionary aspect of it, but then there's also this, well, wait a second, we get rewarded because it's also really good for our system. It's for healing us and keeping us vital as we get older. I don't think that we normally see it that way. It underpins meaning and purpose. So we know this isn't peak performance aging. This is just like what they call healthy aging or successful aging, or like you want to enjoy your later years. What matters? You have to have regular access to passion, purpose, and flow. Really key to sort of this is a blue zone requirement, the longest lived communities on earth, passion, purpose, and flow. It shows up sort of everywhere. It's a, it's a foundational lifestyle thing in adult development. 
Um, you can't gain access to those superpowers of aging I just talked about if um, around age 40, you have to solve the problem of match fit or match quality. It's an economics term. It means there's a really tight fit between who you are as a person and what you do in the world, your strengths, your values, and, and, and how you spend the bulk of your time um, needs to sort of be solved. Um, and when we when it's solved, you get passion, purpose, and way more flow as a result. So all this stuff is really baked in to it. It's, it's how we grow up. It's, it, it's, it's how these processes actually work. That's what's sort of been so cool about the field of peak performance aging over the past 30 years is the stuff we're finding out now that's super, super critical. It's not the obvious stuff. You know, some of it's really, really strange, less than obvious. You don't, you know, I can give you peak performance aging in a sentence. I can tell you everything you need to do in a single sentence. And it's going to be none of the stuff that most people think they should do. Go ahead. Fire. What's the sentence? I want to hear it. If you want to stave off cognitive decline, we touched on this earlier, lifelong learning matters. Why? Because lifelong learning produces expertise and wisdom. Expertise and wisdom are these diffuse networks all over the brain. There's lots of redundancy. And um, this is, it builds up what's known as the cognitive, our cognitive reserve. So if you have a very, very healthy cognitive reserve, you could have horrible dementia, horrible Alzheimer's, meaning when you die, the autopsy of your brain, they find tangles everywhere and plaques everywhere. Like it's just a mess, but you showed no signs of Alzheimer's or dementia. This is extremely well documented. This is what started showing up in the 90s in study after study. There's this fam very famous study done on the Sisters of Notre Dame, um, the nuns who all donated their brains to science and took cognitive physical tests every year, for very long periods of time. And they started an autopsy in their brain. They started to realize that a lot of these sisters had advanced dementia, advanced cognitive decline, but that none of the signs. So what the hell is going on? Lifelong learning, expertise and wisdom. It was also the other mystery. Wisdom came out of this really cool work done by Elkanon Goldberg, who's at uh, NYU. And he wanted to know, this was Reagan, Reagan in 97, and it's announced to the world that the guy had Alzheimer's during this last second four years of his presidency, and it was very severe. And Elkanon Goldberg was like, well, how do you do the hardest job in the world with advanced Alzheimer's? Like, I mean, sure, you got a cabinet, sure, you got backup, but like, you still got to talk to reporters and get on television and do your job. How does this happen, right? This is where this work starts trickling in. Or Willem de Kooning, he dies, and the autopsy is brain, the artist. And again, advanced Alzheimer's dementia, and yet he was producing paintings that sell for $50 million up to, his, up to like the week he died. So again, how does it happen? This is what they learn. So lifelong learning really matters. So that said, if you want to rock to your drop, best way to acquire knowledge, best way to, to solve this problem is to engage in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. So let's break down why each of these three clumps of ideas are important. The first clump is challenging, creative, and social activities. So one, you gotta keep the brain active, right? That's what the challenge is. You have to battle against risk aversion also. Risk aversion increases with age, the neurochemicals that underpin risk aversion are actually really dangerous to peak performance aging and you need to fight against it. So by regularly engaging challenging activities, keep pushing yourself. Creative activities, remember those superpowers of aging, of superpowers of aging, cognitive superpowers I mentioned? 
creativity, wisdom, intelligence, to unlock them fully in the brain, you actually need to engage in creative activities. So creativity produces more creativity and these other benefits. What's an example if I think creativity is painting or music and I don't see myself as that person? Almost, as you know, this is an every action sport athlete I know of thinks of themselves as much of as an artist as an athlete, right? Surfing is about drawing lines across the ocean, which is an aesthetic thing. So let me tell you, now let me tell you why I jumped into park skiing. Creativity itself is a flow trigger. Flow follows focus, only shows up when our attention is right here, right now. There are a bunch of different ways to drive attention in the present moment. One of the easiest ways is to create dopamine in your system. Dopamine produces focus, excitement, attention. When it's in our system, we pay attention to what we're doing. So when you link two ideas together, um, this could be me as a writer. I'm editing and I'm like, oh, that's the wrong word. This is the right word. Boom. There's the right word. That's pattern recognition. So if you've ever done a course of puzzle or Sudoku, get the answer right, that little rush of pleasure you get afterwards, that's dopamine. That's from pattern recognition. So as a surfer or as a skier, when I look at a terrain feature, oh, there's a mound of snow over there. I can grind across across it like a skater grinds a coping or a surfer grinds a wave, right? That's creative interpretation of a terrain feature. That's pattern recognition that drives dopamine into my system. So I was before in our country. Why did I? The experiment was I've spent my whole life as a big mountain skier. That was sort of my plan for my later in life is I'm just going to keep doing this. Big mountain skiing involves taking increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger risks. And risk is a flow trigger, drives attention into the now. But Csikszentmihalyi said, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. It's exactly what he did, right? And don't do that over time. So I decided I was going to teach myself how to park ski because even though I knew learning would be dangerous, um, if I could go zero to intermediate, by the time I got to intermediate and you sort of control your learning a little bit, I would have a million different ways to interpret the mountain. I could interpret it create creatively with a lot less risk. I would have a million more entrances in the flow than just having this one thing I could do where speed, speed and risk are, are the gateways. Suddenly I've got a million ways to get gain access into flow. So that was that other reason that creativity is important. It's a, it's a flow trigger also. Um, and it unlocks these higher thinking styles. So dynamic, deliberate play. Dynamic is simply a fancy way of saying it hits all five categories of functional fitness. I said all of our physical skills are user losing skills. What, what do we have to train as we age? Strength, stamina, agility, flexibility, and balance. Those are the big five. And you can train them all independently. It takes a really long time. Or you can find activities where all five are built into the activity. Skiing was my choice, especially park skiing. It's all built into the activity. Deliberate play. Everybody's heard of deliberate practice, right? That's Anders Ericsson's advice on expert performance. Do the same thing over and over with incremental bet. But it's great advice and it works very well, but for certain kinds of skills. For most skills, deliberate play outperforms deliberate practice. Deliberate play is repetition without repetition or repetition with improvisation, right? You do almost the exact same thing, but you add in a little like nice little twirl or flashy bit or whatever it is. The point is when you're playing, shame goes down, embarrassment goes down, learning rates go up and we get a hell of a lot more endorphins, our internal opiates. These feel really, really, really good and they cement the learning, they boost the immune system, they do all that stuff. So 
dynamic deliberate play way outperforms deliberate practice if you want expertise and knowledge and wisdom that's the fastest path forward why do you want it in novel outdoor environments bunch three different reasons one when we're in nature for a bunch of different reasons that we're not going to go into lower stress levels it literally flushes stress hormones out of our system we know this is really well established um it out you know a 20 minute walk in nature outperforms ssris for mild to moderate depression um so like we know why that works but stress hormones linked to inflammation so like less inflammation better aging the second and most important thing is we've been talking a lot about how do you build up cognitive reserve how do you fight off cognitive decline how do you back up the brain we've been saying you need new neurons and you need new neural networks so in the adult brain the adult brain will continue producing new neurons almost up to the day you die at least 700 a day but they all come out of the hippocampus the hippocampus or most come out of the hippocampus hippocampus fancy uh latin word for the seahorse it's a deep structure deep in your brain back in there it does long-term memory and it does location so it's really important we were hunter-gatherers when you had an emotionally charged incident in nature like i got attacked by a bear here or this was where the ripe fruit tree was right you got to remember that that's survival so the brain is specifically designed to remember what part of the brain? The hippocampus. The hippocampus is packed with place cells and grid cells and location cells. And it like it's designed to remember where you were in a novel outdoor environment and um, lock it in place. Novelty is another flow trigger. So novelty sort of ensures that exploratory thing is going on and you're having an emotionally charged experience. So this is one of the reasons why we started our conversation talking about turns out action sports are really good for us as we age, not really bad for us. One of the main reasons is dynamic, deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. That's action sports. So is challenging, creative and social action sports actually fulfill every component in this sentence. Now, you have to approach them different in your later years than you do in your earlier years, but not a whole lot different. And that's what my experiment proved. And I should say, by the way, just so everybody knows, I don't believe what works for me is going to work for anybody else. That's not science. That's just like, you know, so I ran, I ran this experiment myself. I made more progress in a single season. And I've, I've learned something faster than I ever learned. And it was park skiing in my fifties, which is supposed to be impossible for anybody over the age of 35 for like 11 different biological reasons. And I went in a single season from zero to intermediate. My ski partner was 20 years younger than me. He was a former actual pro athlete who got hurt, retired, has a family, had a career, went back to park skiing. And he, pick, picking up sort of like rebuilding from, from zero and then picking up where he left off, he went faster, farther than we've ever known before. Wow, that was amazing. The following season, we came back, we took 17 older adults, ages 29 to 68, used the exact same protocol. We can talk about what that protocol was. Um, and taught them how to park ski or park snowboard in four days on the mountain. And you don't have to take my word for it. If you go to narcountry.com, you click on the link that says peak performance aging experiment. You can, we had, we had a National Geographic filmmaker follow us around and we wrote everything up as a white paper. And you can see all the data there for yourself. Okay. Very compelling case. But guys that are heading into their late 40s and 50s are usually, you know, getting more rigid, getting more fragile. And it's part of the mindset. So you talked about risk aversion. Let's talk about what's in the way for us as we get older, because I don't really get that it's our bodies because we can train our bodies. So there's something going on between the ears that's keeping us from doing this. What's going on? It's, it's what's interesting 
It's interesting. So there's probably more going on than this. So I talked about that challenge skills balance, right? They pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. Metaphorically, we like to talk about that difference is around 5%, 4 to 5%. That's not a real number. Um, Chick Set Me High came up with it originally. We tested the ever-living shit out of it, but it's really hard to test. So we talk about it as a metaphor. It's a metaphor to train and live by because it works. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task is about 5% greater than our skill set of 4%. You want to stretch but not snap. Now, that's 5%, by the way, is you're already outside your comfort zone. So you're a little uncomfortable. You got to get used to being uncomfortable to do this. Now, that's normal, folks. What we realized is because of trauma, both psychological but definitely physical trauma, if you've ever injured yourself, Trauma builds up over time in the body. We all know this. It's called, the technical term is allostatic load. Allostatic overload is the main cause of burnout, basically. You've overloaded your drama absorption system in a sense. But what we figured out is because of allostatic load, this challenge skills sweet spot, this 5%, it's way shrunk about 1% in older adults. And older adults could mean once you start to get risk averse, once you start to get conservative, once you develop that mindset of old, now this is your problem, right? You've got this shrunken challenge skills sweet spot. So what happens to those 20-year-olds is those 20-year-olds come back to whatever they did and they charge like they were 20. and But their unconscious fear sensitivities and drama, all that stuff, it's no longer what it was. It's much smaller. And as a result, things they used to do comfortably are now producing too much fear. Fear is a performance killer blocks learning, tightens our muscles up, slows fast, which kills everything, right? And gets you hurt, also tenses you up. So if you do fall, you break, right? Your, 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 your muscles and the shock absorption is out of the system. It's just rigid and brittle. So there's all kinds of problems with fear. So what we said is, no, 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 this is, this is our plan. Start with a movement that you can do 100% of the time, zero fear, and always execute it build on it one inch at a time, add a new movement, right? And sort of in a deliberate play fashion, just execute that new movement until you too can, it's automated and can be done. And just go one inch at a time, go really, really slowly. So this is what we did across the boards. And it was wild because even when we were doing, when we had like those 17 older adults who we were working with in the, in the big study, it, the, our biggest concern was because what ha- using this system, you end up making a lot of, progress really quickly <clears throat> but you've got to stay in that one percent even if you're making progress you can't get ambitious you can't go back to what it was um you have to stay in that sweet spot so we found ourselves having to hold people back and really retard their progress to keep them safe to keep them in the game so they don't have that came back to the sport got injured just confirmed that what i no no you came back to the sport the wrong way this is the right way and you really want to protect against that injury you hurt yourself quite a few times in the course of, of uh, this experiment, as you call it. And then you, you talk about at the end, the conversation you had with some people around fear and, and dealing with that. Um, I mean, I can appreciate that there's an aspect of this that is about brain matter, but I'm also trying to think about the talk. I mean, you talk about the voice, the voice. At, throughout the book, the, this one that's talking to you as you're approaching a challenger. What do you mean? You don't have a voice in your head that, that shouts things at you? I got a chorus of voices, brother. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying, like, I don't. I think this is a we, not a me. 
This is a we, but that, I guess that's, that's, so there's also a skill here, which is dealing with that voice. It's not just the brain matter stuff. There's a, there's a kind of a, a you know, this kind of gross level stuff that's happening. So what about this voice? How, I, let's talk about that because to me, I think that's the bigger thing. I love the inch at a time approach here, but then there's also the, the voice dealing with this voice. So, the, you know, at the very end of, of our country, I lay out, 13 rules that I sort of live by during my experiment. And a lot of those rules were created to deal with the voice in my head. I set up a bunch of rules that were meant to keep me safe because I knew I was going to have to make decisions under conditions of, of a lot of fear. And I don't make good decisions when I'm really, really scared. I don't know about you. I make shit decisions. So I wanted to take as much choice out of the equation ahead of time. So I created a set of rules that were designed to keep me safe and deal with fear and solve for all the puzzles I'd encounter along the way. And when I got scared, that was my, I didn't like, I didn't, I, the first thing I, I the first rule is um, rule number one, always follow the rules. There, it wasn't optional. I took, I always said the way I explain it to people is I think of it as I work for the boss. The boss is the version of myself who has my long-term best interests at heart and, and, and can think clearly, right? He's the guy who makes the to-do list the night before. He's not the guy who wakes up in the morning and has to do the 10 things on the to-do list because in the moment, I'm the same as everybody else. Give me the quick fix. Give me the easy out. Give me the cheap high. You know what I mean? Don't give me the really hard thing, even if the hard thing is what I really want. That's long-term progress. That's meaning. That's life satisfaction. It's all the things I wanted. But... Most people don't, most people know parts of this, but they don't they don't understand how crucially crucially important this is. When we're afraid, the first thing the brain does is it gets less creative, more logical, more linear. It wants a tried and true solution, right? The classic extreme examples: fight, freeze, or flee. When shit gets really gnarly, you only get three options, right? Because the brain tiger's charging you. And the brain doesn't want you to sit there and go, "Oh well, a tiger's charging. Should I? What do I do now?" What I, uh, is it launch? No, oh, I should run, uh, run right. You don't, you don't want to do that. You, you go. So that is extreme version, but any amount of fear does that. And when you're in life threatening situations um, or dangerous situations, you want to be creative and flexible and be able to think, think at your best and everything else. You, you, you don't want to be making decisions out of fear because you're going to make bad decisions. You're, you don't have full access to the brain's processing power. You're going to make shit decisions. So, I mean, I always tell this people uh, in business in my company, I always like every, everybody who does hiring for me, I always explain, I'm like, you hire two people. You hire the person they are when everything's fine. And then you hire the person they are when they're scared and they're radically different people. And we got to work with both of them. So make sure we know what that other person is like before you hire them. And I, you know, I, I, do, I do this for hiring, but I, I do it very much for how I think about myself. So I made a bunch of rules for difficult situations and how I behave. And then I always follow those rules because I work for the boss and it, like I don't have a choice. The reason that is also so super important, and I think it's it's, it's so key to, to any kind of peak performance discussion, aging or otherwise, is your brain always wants to save energy. It's what for body, body and brain, the first order of business and energy efficiency, right? We only can get so much calories per day. So conserving energy um, is really, really important. And um, the brain in a, in a lot of ways won't, 
if it doesn't think you can solve the challenge, it won't exert the energy to get you to try. So if you keep breaking, if you set goals and you like, this is also really important with goal setting. If you set goals and you break your word to yourself, you don't keep those goals. It's not a real goal. It was a maybe goal. What happens is in the future, anytime you set a goal, your brain starts looking for the easy way out because it's going to save energy and it knows you're going to go there anyways. And when you take choice off the table, when you say, no, no, I, I, I this goal, I've said it out loud, I've written it down, I'm going to do it. If, I, if it kills me and you stick to that over time, your brain stops looking for easy way outs and instead looks for how do I accomplish this goal? How do I accomplish this goal? How do I accomplish this goal? And often that how do I accomplish this goal thinking is what the very thing you need to accomplish the goal. So this, I, there's a lot of stuff uh, throughout the book on, on sort of how I deal with the voice in my head. Um, but I, that the rules at the end to me were the most important tools. It might be hard to articulate, but <clears throat> I love the, I loved the working for the boss and, and um, you know, the one that's, you said hindsight is better than how you feel in the moment and you know, fear is inevitable. And so we understand that we're engaging this path and we're not going to sit on the couch and, and watch Netflix all day for the rest of our life that we're going to come up against fear. Did you have some sense, or is this just something you learn along the way of how much fear is too much fear? To do this work well, to go 1% inch at a time, right? That's about where's the line, too much fear, enough fear, like where's the mm -hmm. sweet spot? You have to get really good at interior reception. Interior reception is being able to detect the body's subtle signals, right? Um, heartbeat is literally the people who can detect their heartbeat have a much better sense of fear because your heartbeat directly correlates to fear levels it also correlates to all kinds of interoceptive skills including and it's it's weird i don't know if you've seen any of the literature on interoception but um pattern recognition is massively amplified in people with better interoception so they did a study with london stock traders and they, the standard test of interoception is count your heartbeats. How many heartbeats do you have in a minute? Count your heartbeats. And people with really good interoception can get pretty accurate. People who are really off interoception miss it. There's direct correlations between people with bad interoception and every kind of depression, OCD, suicide, on and on and on and on. It, so all kinds of mental health concerns are linked to this, but so are a bunch of athletic things. And so is this fear level. So you wanna get really good at paying attention to the body's internal signals to do this work. And by the way, the standard way to train up interior reception is literally to count your heartbeats. You know, try to, that's literally, it's a great easy way to, way to do it. Um, and you know, for anybody, for anybody who's doing Wim Hof breathing or any of those others, Hello, Kiko. Any of those other breath work things. Um, there's whole points when you're doing breath holds when it's really easy to count your heartbeats. That's a great sort of cross-training thing. You know, when you're doing breath holds, count your heartbeats. Uh, it'll help you hold your breath for longer and trains up into your reception um, really, really well. But yeah, I think that's the hardest. The hardest thing is figuring out how much is too much fear, how much is enough fear, right? You want a little bit of fear because it, it keeps you focused. It keeps you present. It helps learning too much. You're going to sort of like the minute, like you're impacting fast twitch muscle response or your ability. Uh, the one that really gets me and it's really insidious in a dynamic sport, like skiing, park skiing, where you have to be able to fully produce power and dynamic motion. Fear will limit that. 
it limits our ability to, to like fully use the body in that way, which can actually be the thing that puts you in the hospital. So you have to be really cautious with action sports and that and that fear line. Um, but you also want to train up. As I said, you want to train up your risk tolerances over time. So, you know, pushing on that on a daily basis, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. The other thing that is really important, and this is something I talked about in my book, The Art of Impossible, but it's something that. I don't think men hear enough. I made this point a lot in our country too, but like I, and Laird Hamilton was the one who said it to me and it was the most liberating moment of my life. I was young reporter, maybe 25, 26 and spending a lot of time around professional athletes and like in waves and mountains. And I was fucking scared. I was scared to death all the time. I mean, I was terrified all the time and I thought I was a wimp. I thought I was, I had no courage. I wasn't like, well, I thought something was wrong with me and Laird Hamilton Looked at me and was like, he was talking to me about fear. And he said, man, I'm fear is the most common emotion in my life. I can't remember a time that I haven't felt afraid. And I can't remember a day when I didn't feel fear. And this was back in the 90s when Laird was the first guy out in Jaws. And he was like the widely acknowledged toughest man on the planet. Maybe he wasn't. But like for those of us on the outside looking in, he clearly was. And this was that guy telling me he's scared all the time. And once he said it, I was like, oh, so this is how it is. Oh, it's just this bad feeling is in all of us. It doesn't mean I'm less courageous. I just have to do the thing anyways. You, I didn't know that. I thought something was wrong with me for feeling the fear. Like, no, ever, we all feel the fear. It's just what you do with that bad feeling. And to me, that was so helpful and liberating. That is powerful. I mean, you're describing something of like, I'm going to get in touch with reality in this moment. I'm going to get in touch with my, my fear and actually be with it instead of stuff it. It shouldn't be here uh, because if it's here, then it means something's bad or there's something wrong with me. And then there's that one side, which is if I feel the fear, I collapse and I run away. I push it away. I just, we won't do anything. And then I'm old. And then there's the, <laughs> I grew up in Florida. So there's the hold my beer approach, which is, I don't care if I'm afraid. I can't be seen as weak. I can't, I can't, um, you know, I have to posture and I have to prove uh, there's shame involved. You talked about shame in the book too, right? Wow. So it's, it's, it's really huge to find this place where I'm not posturing and trying to prove something. And then I hurt myself and do something stupid, or I, I also collapse to it. So you're talking about this very fine line. I had a ski partner, Ryan. He's better than me by a couple of inches, depending on what we do. When we're running around the mountain, he's a little better than me. If we're skiing in tight trees, I'm actually better because that's my specialty. But almost every place else, he's better. In the terrain park, he's a lot better because he's a former sponsored athlete. But I figured out very early on, especially around the mountain, if Ryan can do it, I can do it. And this has to do with we train very similarly. So our strength levels were similar. We have similar body types. We ski in very similar ways. We like to do similar things and we can do similar things um, because of how we move. So the, my rule was if Ryan can do it, I can do it. And I should, I have to, unless one of three conditions are present. One, I'm feeling too much fear, right? And it's going to hinder my performance. So I got to back off and come back later. Two, Ryan did something fantastic that's clearly out of my skill range but my ego is saying no no dude you got to do this <laughs> right that's two and three equal insidious and the one um that actually probably got me the most frequently when you're in flow 
flow produces a lot of pain-killing neurochemistry. Anandamide and endorphins are both in your system. Endorphins, there's like 20 endorphins in the brain, but the most common one is 100 more times, 100 times more potent than medical morphine. So you're talking about really big, big painkillers um, in, in your body. They can mask fatigue. So I had to have external. So when I started under jumping my jumps, when I was not making to the landing, which is a sign that I'm not, I'm not pushing off and on my legs, or when I'm skiing in my turn, I'm slight, I'm sliding the end of my turns because I can't, my legs are trying to hold the turn all the way through. So I'm sliding the, that those are signs that I'm fatigued. So when those signs showed up, especially if I was in flow, I immediately, I was like, okay, the answer is no. I back off. I do this again later. That was how I stayed safe. But other than that, if Ryan could do it, I could do it. And part of that was also the other thing that we did on the mountain is we played follow the leader games. So there's all this work in embodied cognition and involving mirror neurons and learning that shows that we can learn so much faster and so much better without, with very little talking and by watching we augmented it by actually it's not about what we did it's about what we didn't do so one of the main things we didn't do when you're in flow performance goes through the roof learning goes through the roof. everything you want to maximize flow right really easy to ski yourself into flow doing park skiing for the creative reasons you don't have to take risks you're just like creatively interpreting terrain features you do two or three in a row boom instant flow state it's great on chairlifts we never talked about ourselves our work life, our emotions, um, or current events. Anything the in flow, the prefrontal cortex is really quiet, right? When you talk about yourself, when the ego gets woken up, when you're emotionally involved. So like talking about current events and oh my God, there's a there's a war or there's a recession that like you get gripped, well, that's gonna kick you out of flow. Or if you just start talking, it's really, you know, you meet a stranger on the lift. Hey, who are you? What do you do? It's a really common question. But talking about yourself activates your ego, which turns on the prefrontal cortex, which will kick you out of flow. So we had these rules for, and when we had the, when took the 17 folks through it, that was the stuff that was so weird to them. It wasn't what we were so much doing on the hill. It was what we're, that we weren't letting them do on the chairlifts or at lunch or, you know, the rule was you could talk about skiing and you can make each other laugh. Otherwise, shut your mouth. THC doesn't work very well for my brain. And and then I was really surprised at all of this high performance stuff. And then you were you were also imbibing in some THC along the I way. I was imbibing in some THC <laughs> along the way. How does that how does that work for you? Because it seems to be really counterintuitive with all of this other science you've got. So um there is a miss, there's a bunch of misnomers that THC is a performance hindering drug. It's not, it's actually a performance enhancing drug, but it's not automatic. You actually have to train with THC to get the benefits. So let me talk about a couple of things. One, there's a lot of evidence that, that shows THC can help produce flow. Doesn't work for everyone, but for certain people, it, it works very well. I'm one of those people. Um, the endocannabinoid system, which is what THC activates is uh, deeply involved in both flow and trauma. So one of the things about THC is it tends to, it blocks PTSD and it lowers inflammation. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory and it will block, it blocks the storage of long-term fear memories. So they give it to soldiers, for example, after combat in Ireland and Israel and a bunch of countries. Um, 
because it 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 will it blocks PTSD. So it's really great after an injury because it lowers inflammation, deadens pain, and blocks PTSD. But from performance enhancing, so this is weird, and uh, this is funny. So the one of the ways they test reaction times, the big thing with weed is it hampers reaction times, that sort of thing. They give you a light box, it's a tic-tac-toe board, right? And one square lights up and you tap it. And then next round, it's two squares and you tap, tap. And then it's three, tap, tap, tap. So if you take stone guy and, 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 and sober guy and put them head to Ted, if you light up one square, sober guy wins. You light up two squares, sober guy wins. If you light up three squares, sober guy usually wins. And that's where they usually stop the testing. But then somebody decided to keep going. When you light up four squares, stone guy and sober guy start to perform roughly the same. Once it's five and more, stone guy performs much better. So you're hampered with small patterns, but longer complicated ones is because it keeps the prefrontal cortex deactivated, keeps thinking, it's harder to think a little bit, and it doesn't block automatic motor reactions. And you have to learn to work with it. We produce state-dependent learning. So that's like you study for the SATs in purple sweats, you take them in purple sweats. Weed sort of works the same way. So if you don't practice the things stoned, you're never going to, you're just going to feel like you're stoned. If you're somebody, I, and for, I, it's, for me, it's very specific. Indica is a downer and Indica will lower muscle response and things like that. Sativas work very much better for performance. Um, but you have to uh, not be somebody who gets paranoid with sativas, right? And there's, um, there's ways to handle that paranoia. We can talk about where that comes from and everything else. But the, the short answer, I've actually written articles about this. Marijuana is a performance enhancing drug. If you know what you're doing, you practice with it. Wow. All right. I'm definitely the paranoid. Uh, my flow state is I will flow underneath a bed to get away from the world. A lot of, a lot, a lot of people are like that and, and not for everyone. We were, we've done a lot of work on the endocannabinoid system and flow. And there's a lot of work on the endocannabinoid system and trauma. And so it, it's, it's neat stuff. Um, but you don't, you, I mean, anandamide, which is a psycho, which is the chemical that you, one of the chemicals you produce in flow, same thing that marijuana binds to. So if you can get into flow, you're getting access to the same neurochemistry without having to use external substances. And I always tell people like, I'm not an advisor. I don't believe in external supplements. I really don't like, I will smoke pot through the book and whatever, but like, I always say, you don't want to tie peak performance to to a substance because what if you need to perform any best and you can't get the substance then now you're screwed mm-hmm. um but a lot of the performance and enhancing chemicals they're sort of like double-edged swords they work really really well but you got to know what you're doing and you have to prank train with them practice with them and not for everyone and not for anyone in every situation you know what i mean like these are very these these are tools and they're appropriate in certain instances and really inappropriate in a lot of others Beautiful, man. There's so much really good stuff in the, in the book. The books obviously goes way, way deep into the skiing aspect of things, but there's some beautiful gems in there that uh, we can pull out, especially the list at the end, the 13 rules that you laid out are, are fantastic. Great, great stuff. It's really, so I'll tell you that as a last thing, cause this just has started happening and I, like, I've never seen it before and I've written 14 books and I've talked a lot about my books. So I recently, I've been talking about in our country now for like six months predominantly on podcasts but i haven't gone into the world and like talked to groups about it because the book's not out yet and it's it, like i've been waiting a little bit and i did it for the very first time over the weekend they were like 
80 people in a room I was in and I was in a room that broke down NAR. And when you tell people about like what's actually possible in the second half of life, I don't know how to describe it. It felt like there was a temperature change in the room. Yeah. It felt like everybody in the room exhaled. Like it's like we all got this stress thing inside of us that's like, oh shit, it's coming for me. It's coming, it's coming. And when you actually find out what's really coming for you, that like, wow, there's all this possibility and opportunity. It's totally not what I thought. There's a there's a temperature change. Like it it it's it's a physical shift in folks. And I hadn't seen it before. It, this is one of those books where I like, I'd love this message to spread. You know what I mean? Like. We need not that we, you know, we need the, the world probably needs the over 50s, more empathy, more wisdom. We we could use that right about now. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? It's this is my life. This is I work with guys that tend to be all over 40, but they're all up against these this inertia. And and so these messages and and, and it's more of like. Oh fuck! I can do that because it's easy to look at Laird and dismiss it. And well, that, that yeah, that's shit. why. I mean, by the way, you know, why did I write the thing, Ski Diary? So everybody, like, I am. I'm a bad athlete. I'm on a, a broken body and I'm busy schedule. I run a company. I do a bunch of shit. Right? Like, yeah, but you're also pretty fucking extraordinary. I mean, you, you're you're the handful of guys that are going to get up at three and do this stuff. You know, I mean, it's it's still. But my point, agree. Maybe that's maybe that's true. My schedule was a little extraordinary, but that was just the nature of like what I had going on in the world at the time that I ran the damn experiment. You know what I mean? Uh, but I, you know, as I said at the end, I don't think being busy is an excuse. It can't be because like we're all busy and we're all getting older, and the like the clock is ticking. It's that's we can't fight that, right? So like, if you don't do it now, is it going to get easier later? No. I mean, this is it. I mean, like I said, the guys that I talk to, it's just this, they've lost it. Maybe they never really had it. They've been hoping that it's going to show up, but this is a pathway. And, and you know, you, you laid out a great blueprint here. Um, it's not just skiing, obviously. So, Stephen, thank you so much again, man. Thank you, sir. Yeah, brother. Appreciate Take it. care, man. Good to see you again. Bye-bye. Good to see you again. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.